Have you ever experienced resistance to your racial justice and equity work and was not quite sure how you might navigate it? If you've answered yes to this question, then you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenure professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. On today's episode, which is part two of what to do about resistance to racial justice work, we're going to be talking about why people resist, and then I'll be sharing a few ways that you can navigate um, resistance when you encounter it. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by www.raciallyjustschools.com. And when you join our community today, I will send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community and I look forward to meeting you. And if you're ready to get into today's episode, we will in one second. But first, I have a special announcer that's going to get us started. Let's get this party started. Welcome to the Racial Justice Podcast with your host, Dr. Terrence Elgrade. He's my daddy and he's the best ever. Let's go. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools Podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Now, here's your host, Dr. Terrence L. Green. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools Podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host, And yo, I am exuberant, I am joyful, I am jovial (laughs) that you are here today for this episode. Now, here's the thing. Today's episode is part two about what to do about resistance to racial justice work. So if you have not listened to episode 26, the prior episode, which is part one of this, please pause this or at some point in time, go and listen to that episode because in that episode, I start to talk about, you know, what resistance is, how I start to think about what it is. But I also share the four primary types of resistances that you will more than likely encounter in your racial justice work. And you can encounter them individually or you can be encountering them concurrently. And so I really try to spend some time breaking them down. I write about them in the book that I am working on, and I'm sharing them with you right now. You don't have to wait till the book come out because I want to make sure you're able to identify the landscape that you're working in in terms of resistance. And, and that's going to be super helpful as a context as we think about today, because on today's episode, we're going to be spending time talking about why is it that people resist racial justice and equity work? Why is it that they risk, resist anti-racism, the gamut of reasons? Again, um, not exhaustive, but uh, just sharing some thoughts and ideas with you. And then we're going to be talking about, you know, how might you navigate? How might you respond to the various types of resistances that you experience? So if you have not, again, uh, checked out episode 26, please take some time and listen to part one of this. But I am super excited to dig in and to jump into part two of this episode about what to do about resistance to racial justice work. All right, let's get into it. spend a little time talking about why is it that people resist um, racial justice and equity work and and anti-racism work and there are a myriad of reasons why this happens so I'll just share a few things with you Um, one um, and again this won't be exhaustive there'll be many other things you could think of and so I I would love to hear your thoughts and ideas around this as well number one um, I think it 
uh, people resist it because it threatens their competence. Now, you know, oftentimes schools and districts, they're proficient in doing what they do, even if it's harmful to children. Um, and so people feel like, OK, what I'm competent in is being threatened. And so that leaves them feeling undervalued and adequate and insecure. And it creates the sense of ambivalence, um, as Robert Evans writes about in this his, his book, which I think, you know, is, is useful for thinking about changes in schools and shifting systems. It is, you know, in my opinion, in some ways, a race, a racial and race evasive. But I think the utility is, is still there because people feel a threat to their competence. Even when you start talking about things like um making sure that your instruction and curriculum are um culturally responsive but also in many ways universally designed and people are like well we we don't know how to do that i'm like well what what you are doing is reinforcing a hierarchy and a dynamic of um of educational experiences in your school and people like well we don't know how to do that and so i was like okay just because you don't just because you don't know how to do something should not be the reason for why you continue to reinforce harm just because you know how to do harm and you don't know how to do something that undoes does harm and creates healing right and so but people feel threatened they feel like their co- their competence is being threatened in question and so it creates that that feeling of insecurity and inadequate so they resist they try to undermine they try to stop they try to um eliminate the work that is going on another reason i think is that you know people contend they 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 have emotional responses to change and particularly racial justice change um there's this fear this fear of losing um power this fear of losing um, their identity of what they thought the school should be, their fear of losing the white norms of how things have always played out. And so people engage in this fear. There's also like this grief and this grief becomes marked by people. They, they're in disbelief. They're in denial. They, they become sad. They become angry. It's like all these range of emotions that are at play um, that that elicit these res- these resistance responses. Another thing is like status quo bias. Right. We know from all types of research that in psychological research, there are many biases. And we talk about implicit bias, which I think sometimes is a cover for not talking about racism but there is something that we do know about status quo bias that people in organizations they tend to lean towards maintaining the status quo and they have a bias for the status quo because that is what they know and so when you start talking about making these shifts and these major changes in systems to make them racially affirming and equitable and 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 racially just people like no we would rather hold on to the status quo the status quo bias um, another reason I think people also resist is because they disagree with the approach. And I've seen this happen on some very petty levels, <laughs> you know, petty to the mug. Um, you know, they disagree because the work was called anti-racism work and they wanted it to be called intersectional oppression work. And they arguing over that. And so they try to undermine everything because the name of the work is not what they wanted it to be. Right. Or they upset because uh, they have they wanted, you know, these equity teams at the school level, but the district wanted at the district level. And they're like, well, we don't undermine all of this work, whatever it may be. Right. There can be some very petty reasons why people um, undermine and try to resist the work because they don't agree with it. And I think another reason is that people just want to maintain power. They want to maintain power and they don't want to upset the um, the 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 racial status quo. And they want to continue to hoard and maintain power because they benefit from the way things are. So any 
attempt to to disrupt that is met with resistance. And another reason why people resist racial justice and anti-racism work is, you know, just to be quite frank and candid and blunt with it, is that they're just racist, right? There's not too much sugar you can put on that coat. They just they just straight up racist. They want to maintain white dominance. They want to take want to maintain a system of white supremacy and they just racist. And um, this times where some folks, they're just explicit and they let you know where they are. And then there are other times and I found this more in like progressive liberal air quotes context where the people are really racist, but they know the language and they know the discourse and they know the sayings and they know the ways in which to show up to um, make you think that they are not. But all of the decisions that they make, all the policies that they support, all of the actions that they take, they re-inscribe and reinforce the same racist systems that we have. Right. And what that is, you know, systems are also racist. And this could be a this would do a whole podcast on like racist systems. Like the systems and the structures are so deeply ingrained and deeply embedded, the logics in them, they actually support this white norm. Right. All types of systems, um, systems of curriculum, um, um, systems of as we think about what behavior is and suspension, um, um, systems of what it means to be uh, a, a achievement, academic achievement. Like what is that predicated on? What is the history? What is the what are the logics? What are the the the, the scientific um, pseudoscience in which some of the stuff is 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 founded on? But one of the reasons why people resist is because they are racist and the systems are racist. Right. And so that creates a dynamic for us to be aware of and again it's, it's it's better to have an understanding to know what you're navigating against because here's the thing i always like to say you play chess and checkers on the same board but it's different pieces in different moves right so w- once you understand the, the the game that you're in it can give you insight and perception on the moves that you need to make strategically to accomplish that and to realize that what you're trying to realize, which is having anti-racist and racial justice be the reality in every facet of a school and of a district and any educational organization or context and even beyond schools and education. So now I want to spend a little time talking about like, what do you do when you experience resistance to your racial justice and anti-racism work? Like, how do you respond? How do you navigate it? And I want to share just a few uh, ideas and thoughts and tips and actions that you can take um, when you experience it. And again, like all of this, this isn't exhaustive, but it is a starting place or something to go take your work further along. But there are a couple of things I think you can do. So one is, and this may seem a little counterintuitive, um, but the one of the first things I think you can do is to engage in active listening. Um, and, and, and the reason why you want to engage in the, the, the accurate listening is because you really want to understand like what people's concerns and what their issues are. Right. And that dovetails and kind of like the second thing that I was going to say the second thing in the first the second and the first action they go together the second action is to understand the source of the resistance right but in other in order to really understand the source of the resistance you have to engage in active listening because it could be resistance that is more um, vicarious but it actually could be more venting resistance and if it's venting resistance then 
that is actually could be a gift for you. That actually could be feedback to make your work be more robust, to go deeper, to be more profound and actually be more substantive. And so you want to engage in active listening so you can really understand the source, because if you understand like the source of it is like we have like deep misunderstandings here um, and it's not like these profound ideological differences that we have. Or there's an issue about the, the the approach that I'm taking and there there might be ways in which we can approach these things differently. Like some of that stuff can actually be worked through. Right. And so some of the things you can do is to really engage in active listening. And also do you do that so that you can understand the source of the resistance? Like where um, is this coming from? I think some of the other things that you can also do is you can continue to over communicate the importance of the work that you're doing right over communicate and part of the over communication is not allowing people to put the burden of proof on you but making them put the burden of proof on maintaining the same system so what do you mean in other words Oftentimes people are like, well, wh- why do we have to do uh, anti-racist work in equity? Why do we need to make the school more equitable? And so they put the burden of proof on you. And then you go through and you're starting to show, you know, all these examples and all these data points, all these lived experiences, and all these stories. But y- y- you're not on trial. <laughs> What's on trial is this current system and structure that we're in. And so the burden of proof is on them. And the question you should ask back to them is, wh- why should we maintain a system that miseducates our black students why should we maintain a system that continues to segregate students based off of these constructed notions of ability and identity and economic background things like so help me understand why we should maintain a system that does that and are you in support of a system that continues to marginalize and to compete oppress, right? So you put the you put the burden of proof back on them, or they'll come and say, a lot of people actually this happens a lot. A lot of people in this work they um, they've experienced vividness biasness. So a vividness biasness is when something happened once or twice, but it was so vivid in people's psyches and in their conscience, they make these general and broad statements like, well, everybody has done that. For example, a, t- a teacher I remember I was working with, he said, uh, all the black boys, they come in here and they do X, Y, Z. I don't even remember what the behavior was. They always come here and do X, Y, Z. And then I asked him, I said, so you mean like literally all the black boys? And the more we talked about it, it actually was he had an experience with this one black boy. And based on that one experience, it was so vivid. He now projected that to all the black boys do. Right. But again, we couldn't have gotten to that without in, to, in this engaging and active listening and understanding the source. But people have this vividness, biasness. And so they'll say things like, well, uh, the whole school is going this way or, or everything is unsafe here or, or, or or all the, all the teachers are horrible. Or they'll say like these blanket statements because they had one experience and that vividness, biasness is so big in their psyche that they can't, they can't maneuver or see beyond it. And so this is why you have to over communicate the importance of the work, but in over communicating the importance of the work, put the onus and the burden of proof back on them to explain maintaining a status quo in equitable racist white supremacy colonized system than you having to explain the need for something that is more equitable and racially just i'm not saying you shouldn't shouldn't have to explain that but i'm saying in your over communication you make them do some work as well and then the other thing 
um, that you can continue to do is I think as your resistance is that we have to build coalitions, right? We have to build coalitions of people who not only strategically work inside of our districts or in our schools, but people who work outside, right? So there, there are these um, dynamics of working inside the system, outside the system, and also beyond the system. Shavana Shange talks about in her book, within, outside, and beyond. And so part of the work we have to do uh, of working in schools is we have to build the coalitions. This work is so vast and it's so multi-sector that we just can't be reliant on educational stakeholders and people who are engaged in the educational system. This is why community-based equity audits are super important, right? How do you start to build these 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 solidarity relationships with um, families with community-based organizations, with with neighborhoods, with people who span inside but also outside of a school. And this is, I think, because at times you're going to need support from people outside your district in the community um, to, to, to support you in the work that you're doing, right? And so part of our response um, in dealing with resistance is building coalitions. And then another thing <laughs> is you just don't respond to it. <laughs> that is another response because some of these resistances are such distractions and such detours, again, that their only aim is to eliminate, stop, or dilute what you're doing. And so some of it you just don't even respond to. So this is why the the kind of the grid, the chart that I shared with you earlier about what type of resistance is it is important because you need to understand what you're dealing with, right? But you don't have to respond to every single resistance that comes your way. It's something to be and to expect. It's something that you can anticipate, but you don't have to respond to every single resistance. And so these are some of the things you can do to begin to respond to the resistance that you'll encounter in your, because some of these people, they, it, 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 it is difficult to have any type of logical argument with people. I said this already about critical race theory, some folks, they just have no, they, we're like on two different worlds. So having a response to them, it just makes no sense. It's actually an energy drain and a time drain. It's another way to address resistance and respond to it is I th- is to address people's concerns and their fears. I think it's important to name people's fears, put them on the table, put them out in the open name their concerns and fears and this goes back to what i was saying about um this vividness biasness like oh oh so you are afraid that if we have a culture responsive curriculum that x y and z is gonna happen like put that on the table oh you are afraid that if we center the experiences of black latinx asian pacific that all of a sudden it means that x y and z oh you are afraid right you are afraid that if we have um, um, restorative practices in how we deal with issues of behavior and issues of harm. You fear that it's going to make the school completely chaotic and nothing's going to be done and people are just going to do whatever they want to do. Oh, that's what you're afraid of. And this is, this is going back to that overcommunication. It's naming what people are afraid of and then creating this bridge to get them over to what you're really talking about. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we need to have a system that re- that repairs, that restores, 
And that reconciles when harm has been done. Right. So I think you have to address their concerns and name their fears explicitly. And as you name their fears and their concerns explicitly, create the bridge through your communication over to where you are actually trying to go with your work. So in other words, it is identifying and locating where they are in the resistance and then naming it. And then as a bridge and then again, and then trying to get them over to understand where you are going. Oftentimes what we do, they in their resistance, you where you are. And this, there's a big gap in this gulf between, you know, where you're going, what they think is happening. And it's just, it's, it's all over the place. Now I did say, you know, some is not worth addressing. So some resistance is worth addressing. This is only how you respond to resistance that is worth um, addressing. And then if there are things that are, you know, these types of violence resistance, you definitely need to go seek um, whatever help is needed to make sure that you stay safe on all types of levels, psychologically, physical, mental, um, so on and so forth. But these are a few things um, we can start to do to think about how do we navigate and what do we do with the resistance that we experience in this work. Well, that is it, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. We love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.